HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. If I say ancient Roman food, I think usually that would conjure up some visions of elaborate feasts, of exotic foods, maybe peacock tongues and pigs stuffed with geese, and endless parades of wine-filled amphora. And rightly so, because much of what we commonly know about Roman food, if you're not a student of that, it mostly comes probably from some of the ancient writings, the satires of Juvenal or Petronius, the extravagant banquets of the wealthy Romans. Not necessarily true or accurate, but definitely reflecting some of the culture and dining of the times. Closer study of the food of that period um, has attracted both scholars and food enthusiasts and reveals recipes and daily habits that are quite interesting and might even be surprising to people who think that it was, you know, all so untouchable and un unusual. My guest today is one of those enthusiasts, bringing her study of archaeology into the mix. She's Farrell Monaco, a member of Exarch um, Experimental Architecture, we'll find out, and the SAA, Society for American Archaeology. Uh, Farrell has combined her love of history, cooking, and travel with her studies of archaeology to write an informative and entertaining website and blog called tabulamediterranea.com, or Mediterranean Table, in which she recreates ancient dishes of Rome and the, and the Roman era and the rest of the Mediterranean. But today, we're focusing on the Roman era. Welcome, Farrell. Hi. 
Um, I'm so glad you could join us. It, you're um, Farrell's out on the West Coast, so forgive our connection here if things get rocky. But um, Farrell, tell me what. So, what came first, your love of archaeology and your study of archaeology, or food? Um, I would say that <clears throat> they ran together, actually. Um, I've always been interested in archaeology, and I've been studying it for quite a while. And but I've always been very creative in the kitchen as well. So throughout my ongoing studies in archaeology, um, I've always been focused on archaeology of food, ceramics mainly, um, transport amphora. And in studying that and in looking at food ceramics um, in the Roman Mediterranean, I kept being drawn back to um, a point that was um, about the food itself. Like when you study um, ceramics in the Roman Mediterranean or Roman archaeology, uh, food archaeology, it tends to veer off towards you know what broader meanings you can extract from it, like social or economic um, data. Mm-hmm. But I kept being drawn to the food itself, and I wanted to know more about what did that food taste like, what did it feel like, what was the texture of that bread, how punchy was that oil, for example, <clears throat> and so. I found myself taking the archaeological data and then translating it um, into something that was edible so that I could actually kind of insert myself into the process as that missing human in the interpretive process so that I could taste the food, literally, by using, you know, the writings, um, the archaeological data, and in some cases, the pictorial record as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and and you do a wonderful job in recreating many of those recipes. Is is this what you call, is this the term um, edible archaeology? Is this what you mean by that term that you've coined? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, um, I kept thinking that, you know, like for, in archaeology in general, we tend to want to quantify everything. We want to count and weigh things and put it into Excel and turn it into a scatter plot or charts that we can look at. And, you know, we can count pot shirts, for example. We can count ceramic shirts. And we can see that there's X amount of Dressel 20, for example, like a Betacan olive oil containers. And we can then say, all right, but we know that there's a significant um, presence of Betacan olive oil in the Roman market during this specific time period. But like I said earlier, I kept thinking more about the oil, and I wanted to know what's the quality of the oil like. If it was so popular, what did it taste like? And so the, the kind of the sub-disciplines of experimental archaeology or sensory archaeology, for me, it felt like that part of the process was, was pretty integral. Like, I don't want to just count the pot shirts and then say, okay, there was a, a significant economic relationship between um, Hispania and Rome at that point. I wanted to actually focus on the food itself and that reflection of Roman daily life, not just the economic or the social aspect mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. So for me, once again, you know, as an archaeologist, when you're, when you're looking at data, you're always missing that human component of the process. So if you insert yourself as a surrogate in that process and you decide, okay, I'm going to take <clears throat> the writing of Pliny, for example, mm-hmm. and I'm going to take this grain mill and I'm going to labor away at it and I'm going to use this mortar and I'm going to feel what it's like to actually spend two solid hours to make my lunch. <laughs> and I'm going to 
slave over this, and I'm going to use these ingredients and understand how much that person valued that meal because it was hard work. That, to me, tells me a lot more about that person than uh, quantifying potsherds, for example. Mm. tells me a lot more when I put myself into the process and then through, you know, kind of remaining cognizant throughout that process of all of my senses, how sore are my arms, how sore are my hands, um, my back is getting sore. For example, I, I um, recently got a manual grain mill, which were quite common in some of the smaller households in the Roman Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And I used this thing for almost half an hour, and I made two cups of emmer wheat flour. I was going to say, that. I, I'd seen that. So had to, I, I, I thought, I'm going to have to call my chiropractor, <laughs> because I thought, my God, this is a lot of work. But I valued that flour, and I valued the bread that I made with it. Right. And it made that meal so much more important to me. And it, and it became quite apparent to me how integral food was in the daily life of, of Romans. This was your daily life, food procurement and preparation and consumption. It was, it was central to daily life. Um, but then so how... But that how, aspect of it... Right. Uh, and, and then tasting it, making that archaeology something that I can taste... Mm-hmm. Um, put me that much closer. Um, it, it broadened the interpretive um, scope, the interpretive process for me. Right. And then, of course, um, taste is, is, that's the subjective and difficult place to go and try to figure out. It is. You know, did how, we don't know how it tasted. We don't grow the wheat, the exact same wheat. I mean, there are people no. who are uh, working at, at reviving and finding some of the ancient grains and the seeds to, to plant them, but it's going to taste and they have changed over time. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the water is different, and everything's different. So you, I mean, you're getting an approximation, but I think that's interesting that it's the work that you, the actual process of making the food. It really, I can understand that one really does come to a different understanding of what, of of what it took to make that loaf of bread. But you of can, course, you can literally walk a mile in the shoes of the original coquist, hmm. the original cook. You can mm-hmm. walk a mile in his or her shoes, and you can understand what that daily process was like, and it's quite beautiful. Hmm. Interesting. Um, what, well, when you say that you, you know, you'd get the shards of, of the different pottery, the, the transport amphora. Now, these were found in, in market areas or you know, where, like, the amphora were used in only in tra- transport? I understood that tra- that they would also be used in the home for storage. I mean, they could. I mean, transport amphorae literally are there. They're often dubbed um, the archaeological garbage of the Mediterranean because yeah. they're ubiquitous. They're, they're right. everywhere. They're, they're, you know, lining the seabed of the Med. They are all over um, what used to be the Roman Empire. In Rome in particular... Um, which is um, where I worked in 2016 when I volunteered with um, CPAC and Archeo Spain, Monte Testaccio, which is a part um, of the Emporium um, River Wharf complex in Rome, which was a part of the food supply chain. Um, Monte Testaccio is a massive man-made landfill that is comprised mainly of um, Spanish uh, Dressel 20 olive oil um, ceramic amphora. And so this is one incredible source for not just um, food consumption, but economic relationships. And it, I mean, you can see, you can see some pretty incredible stuff happening when you can see when the Tunisians 
started to nose their way into the market in the mid-third century. And so this mound is um, it's a way to date um, the olive oil uh, market uh, during the um, during the first three centuries um, of the empire, and it's a way to also look at consumption levels of olive oil in Rome. Um, so transport amphorae, they're not just um, pieces of ceramic garbage. They are relative dating tools. They're um, tools to look at consumption. They are tools uh, to look at business relationships, trade routes through the Mediterranean. They are, to me, they are one of the most valuable um, pieces of archaeological data uh, for food that the Roman Mediterranean has to offer. Hmm. That's, that, is, to me, is, is very interesting. I, I would love to, to take a little uh, dive into that one. That would be fun. Something totally different for me, so that would be, that would be fun. Um, the, uh, what other than, now you mentioned olive oil a lot, and I, of course, you know, read about uh, <clears throat> archaeologists digging up uh, things, and of course Pompeii, which we'll talk about shortly, you know, gave us such a wealth of, of knowledge for so much of the food. Uh, carbon dating, the remains of something that they find. Is this is this something that's still, are you still finding, are organizations and digs still finding new uh, recoveries of, of pottery that has some of this remains? Well, I mean, that's pretty tricky. My, my understanding is that to resort to chemical analysis or carbon dating is, is usually quite expensive. So archaeologists will resort first to, um, you know, looking at it visually mm-hmm. and assessing what it is, you know, if, if they find, for example, carbonized seeds, like, like um, the museum in Bosco Reale, um outside of Naples, has a fantastic array of um, burnt and carbonized foodstuffs that they found um, that were a result of the eruption in 79 AD. They will resort first to assessing it visually then they'll resort to chemical analysis because it is quite expensive. Um, Amphorae, for example, or foodstuffs that are um, in, in the holds of ships mm-hmm. that, um, that have sunk, those can be quite telling, especially, for example, um, in Turkey in the Black Sea, there's the four shipwrecks, Sinop, A, B, C, and D. Those ships sunk and are presently in an anoxic environment. It's anaerobic. There is no oxygen, there's no decomposition. So they're in a perfect environment where I believe that there's actually food stuff that's still preserved, uh-huh. but they can't exactly pull it out. They can't take it out. I believe they've, they've, they've chosen to leave them in situ um, in the ships in order to be able to study them from a distance and, and where they currently rest. Um, chemical analysis is being done. In fact, I was, I was reading um, in an Italian book about the flavors and the food of Pompeii, <clears throat> that they did actually do chemical analysis on uh, some of the bread that was found in the bakery of Modesto, that the, the, the infamous Panis Quadratus, the one with the eight cuts and or the eight wedges. Right. Oh, the, um, the black carbonized one, yes. On that. And um, again, the museum in Bosco Reale has some fantastic um, examples of, of, you know, there's uh, dregs of the bottom of a, of a garum amphora. And so I think visually you can assess it and, and conclude what it is first, but then if they want to do residue analysis of the inf- inside of an amphora, they can, but I do know that it's expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit. You mentioned um, a garum 
amphora. So we, we will describe for our listeners what this is. What and and I've read some interesting things how they realized what it was that they found when they found it. But garum being the um, the seasoning um, made from fish from uh, yeah. fermented fish. <laughs> interesting stuff. Yeah, but they um, and they found and I'm doing another show on that uh, shortly. Uh, but and they found the remains of, of fish bones and, and fish that had been used and was or had not yet been used even to, to make the mm-hmm. fermentation. And that was that was their common seasoning. Correct? It 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 was indeed. It was it was kind of like MSG for the mm-hmm. Romans. Mm-hmm. It was a flavor enhancer. Um, and it was a way to salt your dishes. And it's something that's very interesting to me because if you think about the preparation process of it, it's quite hideous. It's, um, I mean, they would leave, you know, open dolly or open vats, uh, large ceramic containers of fermenting fish entrails and guts, um, the, the leftovers of the fish with, you know, that were heavily salted and they would leave it out, you know, to ferment in the sun for God knows how long. And the smell that must have come off of it must have been phenomenal. And but clearly, they did it with success um, because they didn't, you know, kill the entire population off with food poisoning, right? <laughs> right. I mean, this is this is one ditch that or one one dish that I won't touch. Um, mm. Well, now you know I am afraid that I will make myself <laughs> sick. In the no, process. you you might you and, might think you might think about that again. I have a daughter-in-law who is heavy into fermentation and alchemy. I have a couple of barrels fermenting in my uh, one of my barns really? upstate. Yeah, <laughs> and it's wonderful you what have she produces. Of in your house. Mm, what? Not in the house. No, God, no. But <laughs> um, outside <laughs> in in a barn. Um, but the. But it takes many years. It takes a long time. But the product that it produces is just unbelievable. Really I would be delicious. Interested in speaking to her then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Let's. So let's talk about um, some of the foods. Now, obviously, we don't learn about all the foods from the shards of pottery and the and you know the remains in a dig. But there are a lot of other sources that we use, and obviously, you have used in order to find some of these dishes that you like to cook and recreate. Um, Correct. Tell us what, in, what, where do you go? What do you, what uh, do you go to in particular? Well, um, the written record, of course, is, is fantastic mm-hmm. for sourcing um, ingredients and instruction. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, from Pliny to Cato to Columella to Apicius, they weren't, they weren't big on measurement. They weren't. Um, it's 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 very rare that um, you'll be told how much of this and how much of that you need to put in. So there's some experimentation that's involved. Um, I I have have used Columella's writing, um, Cato's writing, um, Dere Rustica, um, the Agricultura, Pliny's um, Historia Naturalis, the Apician uh, recipes as well, and recently actually. Um, man, I had fun with this recipe. I I made a Muratum recipe from a Virgil poem. And okay, so do you have to describe? To you have to describe to us. Absolutely incredible. Okay. Because it, it was so telling. I mean, this poem, it, it it pleased me so much because it was quite extensive. It went through um, the entire morning of this Roman plowman named Simulus, and you know him getting up 
and deciding to make his breakfast and calling on his slave to help him. And it literally told you how to make this um, heavily garlicked muratum that actually turned out to be quite tasty. Um, and the poem to me was beautiful because it explained so much of the labor involved, and it also explained, it, 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 it portrayed his thinking and kind of how hard his life was and how lonely he was and how he toiled over his mortarium making um, his moratum. And I got sucked into this so quickly, and I thought, this is fantastic, and I followed the poem, and I did his movements. And I ground my grain. That was what I got the grain mill for. And I felt literally like I was in Simulus's shoes. So that particular piece of, of the written record for me was incredible. And it produced something that I felt accurate because the poem was very, very accurate in um, how much to put in. And, and the, the funny part about it was the amount of garlic that it asked for. Hmm. And I followed it. I put in four bulbs of garlic. And I was terrified. But when I ate it, it was phenomenal. It was great. Really hot. Now, really describe for, the les- for our listeners what a moratum is. A moratum, is, it's, it's kind of strange. It's, kind, it's like a cheese salad. So it incorporates fresh or aged cheese with greens and herbs, uh, sometimes garlic, sometimes not. Um, and you start with your greens and your herbs and your mortar, and you pulverize it, and then you add in the cheese and you mix it together. And from my findings, you can often have kind of a dip consistency, mm-hmm. uh, or you can also eat a cheese ball consistency. Um, and it goes really well with um, tracta or flatbread um, or, you know, a nice hearty penis quadratus, like a nice whole wheat bread. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's kind of a combination of cheese and greens and herbs mixed together. Yeah. Like um, a Roman cheese ball. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I think that's that's something that people would be surprised that that would be a flavor and or a, an item that would be on the table. Um, it seemed to be quite popular. It's written about quite a fair bit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and what's when you were naming the different sources? What's wonderful is so many of the um, the Romans, uh, the Roman era scholars have taken a, a closer look and a closer study of a lot of the books of, of ancient Rome, particularly Apicius, of course, we, um, or Apicius, depending Apicius, on how you want to say it, yeah. yes, <laughs> um, Sally Granger and, and Christopher Grocock particularly Correct. come to mind, and, and of course Andrew Darby and Sally Granger have also done a couple of nice books, a classical cookbook um, from the yeah. era. What's nice is, I don't know if you have used... I think you said you did use the um, the recipes that they re-did, reproduced in Apicius. Hopefully she'll be here in the spring and we can get it from her directly. But um, they've made them very approachable, the recipes. Don't you find? Yeah, they, they have indeed. And they've done two versions as, as well. But the book, uh, one of my Bibles is their critical version, right. Brokock and Granger's critical version, because it doesn't... Um, it doesn't clean it up. Dumb it or, down or dumb it down. For the average home cook. <laughs> right. It is exactly as it should be, so it allows you more flexibility to play with it. It shows you how ambiguous it is at times, mm-hmm. and um, and you, you are forced to experiment and to look into it and to see the original. They've published the Latin and then an English translation so that you can really dive deep on it. Right. It's nice. And I greatly one, appreciate that book. One page facing another, which is terrific. I, I love that, too. Um 
what? So tell me about one of um, another dish that you found particularly intriguing and 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 perhaps delicious or not delicious. But <laughs> okay, um, one of the other dishes that I enjoyed making and that I actually got quite a fair bit of email on as well was Columella's cheese using fig rennet, hmm. and I remember starting that and I thought, okay, I'm I'm going to do this by the book. And I have fig trees in my backyard. So I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, you know, cut down my figs and um, get as much sap, the, the, the white bitter um, sap that comes out between the stalk and the fig head. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to see how much it's going to take because Columella said that if you are not able to find animal rennet, which again, in the modern era, I'm not keen on that. I, mm-hmm. And I don't know how I would extract um, animal stomach acids myself, so I decided <laughs> to go with his suggestion to use fig rennet. And um, I was so over the moon because it worked like a charm. And um, so originally what I did was I cut a whole bunch of figs off, and I tried to catch the rennet as best that I could in my hand and in a bowl. Um, you, can't, you can't really get a lot out of it. You can get maybe a tablespoon if you um, cut, I would say, you know, 20 to 30 figs off. But what I did find that worked really well was taking the stalks from the fig head back a few inches, doing a slit in them, and then boiling that and extracting the rennet in the water. Hmm. And so I just put, you know, maybe a couple tablespoons of the fig rennet water, the, the sap reduction that was in the water, into my whole milk. And it separated like a charm. And I was, I was over the moon. I was so happy. And then, you know, when I put it together... Um, separated um, the, the curds from the whey. I um, strained it in cheesecloth, and then I tasted it. And it was interesting because it did have, it had a slightly bitter undertaste in the back of the throat mm-hmm. from the fig sap. But it didn't bother me. And it was, it, it, and, and again, I looked at that and I thought, oh, that's something that they tolerated, and that's something that was probably quite common in their cheese making if they use this method. Hmm. But how? So but how much did that? Cheese with a slightly bitter undertaste. I was going to say how great. much of it actually came out in the cheese. You could you could taste it in the, che- the in the cheese. It, it was an aftertaste. Yeah. It wasn't hmm. present at first, but um, you know, a couple of seconds after eating it, you got a tiny little shot in the back of the throat, and it was um, the fig sap. Oh, and I did um, I did do reading before I made it um, just to make sure that I wasn't going to poison myself, and I had read that that some people had um, allergic reactions to it, uh, fig sap, uh, when it touches the skin. So I put that warning out and said, you know, if you think that you're going to be sensitive to this, do not uh, conduct this experiment. Um, but I uh, let everyone live vicariously through me as I consumed it and touched <laughs> right. it with my hands. Very interesting. Well, we're going to talk about a couple of other recipes and uh, about your experience in Pompeii with the study as well okay. when we come back after this short break. So stay tuned. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, 
And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Hi, we're back. And I am talking with Farrell Monaco. Farrell is an archaeologist and a food enthusiast and, and uh, publishes a, a wonderful website and blog called tavolamediterranea.com, where a lot of these recipes she's talking about um, you can find there and you can read more about the process and, and perhaps find one that you too want to, to play around with. Farrell... Um, there was uh, you have you did a couple of of really wonderful sweet recipes that um, I think the one in particular is the uh, the platina which I think um, bears talking about um, the like a flan um, could you describe that for us please the um I think you're referring to the tiropatinum. Yes. Or the tiropatina. Oh, patina. Um, the apician recipe. Yes. It's actually, it's, it's, it's lovely. It's very simple, made with egg and cream. Um, and what I loved about it was that it's, it's very similar to, to custard, to what we eat nowadays. And it gave me a, a, a strong indication of the Roman sweet tooth and how they appreciated um, desserts as much as we do. And um, very easy to make, very simple, um, but very decadent as well. Mm. And, I mean, could you not have... I I read through the recipe, and 20 eggs, and I'm thinking, okay, (laughs) how many people are we serving here? (laughs) And you could not find a way to cut that down to make it, to make the final product, or you just decided to make a big batch? I want you know what I, I'm I'm not looking at the recipe right now, okay. but I I do know that I made a lot of them. There were a lot, and I had decided to make individual ones uh-huh. because I know my readers, rather than make you know a large one, they the, the little mini tiny ones are uh, much more easy to consume in the modern era. But I do remember having quite a few of them, mm. quite a few tins yeah. of, of them on the go. Yeah, it's it was it seemed like quite a um, a whisking job. Let me say that, <laughs> but it was. Yeah. But <laughs> it it's was. interesting because the foods. I mean, they're you know, it, it, just so people realize. I think to let them know that before things change, and I'm saying things change in the modern era quite a bit. But the Romans pretty much ate three meals a day, um, not unlike you know our our habits today, and. Correct. Right, and there, so they had, you know, they had their meats and their fish, and 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 of course the wealthy would get them no matter where they were. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, and the bread, and so I wanted to talk just a little bit. Well, let's go. Let's jump to Pompeii because I wanted to talk about ovens 
um, sure. being that you, I'm sure, saw a lot of uh, excavated pieces uh, in your study. Um, but you had a wonderful opportunity to uh, to work in Pompeii. Tell us about that. I did, yeah. Um, I last summer I worked with the Pompeii Food and Project or the Pompeii Food and Drink Project, um, and they. Uh, it's a fantastic project that's been going for 17 years, and they have been studying all of the features and structures of Pompeii that are food and drink related, and they have been logging them meticulously in a database that is almost done. And it will be, um, I know it's for academic use. I believe it may be for public use in the future as well. And it's essentially preserving all of that data in a database because the site itself is is suffering quite a fair bit under, um, you know, the stress of the traffic that's in there daily. I mean, the tourist traffic is essential to the conservation efforts, Mm -hmm. but it's also causing damage. So this project is logging all of the food and drink um, buildings, houses, the Caponia, the uh, Thermopolia, and making sure that that data is there in the future um, for everybody to study um, the, you know, the food consumption and preparation, pref- excuse me, preparation processes uh, at Pompeii. Mm-hmm. It is so much better than it was, um, and it's, and yes, I, I too have read about the, the, uh, the dangers of all the traffic and the um, vehicular traffic, which is, you know, causing destruction and they did close parts of it and limit some of the hours i know but what's so wonderful is to walk in and actually see things you have things you read about or have maybe one has read about um the the tavernas which are there they are to see yeah um and that and i think of so i think of uh you know the pots the amphora the things that would go in these if you have not seen a picture of a of a roman Taverna. It's uh, kind mm-hmm. of like what we would say. A, what would you say? Like a hot tape, like a um, prepared it's a fast food stand food counter. Yeah, a fast it's, food counter. Um, Good. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's a fast food counter with dolia that are in situ underneath it. They're, they're permanently fixed into the counters, and you know they would have contained I don't know bean stew or different hot foods. They would have served drinks as well. And I liken, you know, the tavernas. You almost like it's like a, a plebeian fast food counter. Mm-hmm. You would go in there and you would hit it on the way home or on the way out. You know, during the daytime, um, some people did not have cooking facilities. Um, if they lived in insula, if they lived in you know the apartments or the smaller dwellings, they wouldn't have cooking facilities, so they had to eat out. Um, and some of these tavernas also had sidewalk benches, and you can see them uh, throughout Pompeii as well, where people would sit and they would eat a meal, and then they'd be on their way. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, of course, there's still the Roman or the Italian uh, prevalence of tavola calda and the, the hot yes, tables, which, exactly. which is the it same thing. It all translates right. forward right. beautifully. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It does. Um, and then the bakeries themselves are, are stunning as well. The bakeries I'm, I'm enamored with, mm-hmm. and I've been enamored with them for years. You walk into them, and you see the ovens, and you see those large hourglass grain mills and something something just catches you. It's, it's so incredible to see that industry, to see um, how, you know, the high volume of bread that was being produced daily to, to feed Pompeii or to feed Rome, for example. Ostia also has some incredible um, bakeries and, and granaries at Portus, etc. The bread consumption and the grain consumption, um, you know, during the Republic and the Empire, it was massive. 
and these bakeries um, can attest to that beautifully. Interesting. They, um, yeah, I mean, they would, in times of, of in dire needs, they had, I mean, to be on the dole, they would dole out portions of grain. I and mean, grain was so important that they... Correct. They would, yeah, they'd have the great grain storages. Uh, the... So the breads, the the wonderful um, finds, the original wonderful finds, and then some of the later at Pompeii, like you talked about the Panis Quadratus, the and the one that was black and charred, but you could still see the the divisions. Um, yeah. So you know the so you could see the shape of the bread. So when you reproduce some of these, you know what you're making, right? Yes and no. And Panis Quadratus is is a is a thorn in my side. Um, because it's something that I've been studying and reading about and digging deeper on for a long time. Um, I published a recipe, um, kind of a prototype, like a beginning recipe for it in, I think it was November of, of last year, and got a really good debate going with a lot of my readers and um, a lot of academics and whatnot about the form, about the form and the shape, um, the tool that was used to make those those wedges on top, it is not a cut. We know it's not a cut. It's almost, it's like a blunt instrument that's used to make it. But we're not sure if it's something that is that is coming from the center of the loaf, like Greta Stephanie, um, the director at Pompeii, she had written that, that she felt that it was a blunt um, tool that was being pivoted um, from the center of the loaf outwards. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, some people feel that it's almost like a large apple cutter, right? Yeah. But, but the problem is that there's nothing in the archaeological record to, to tell us this. There's nothing. There's, there's no metal cutter. There is nothing that has been found in the bakery of Modesto, which is where these 80 loaves of bread were found, the carbonized loaves, to tell us what made those cuts. And then further from that, Why? Why the cuts? Mm-hmm. Is it strictly decorative? Is it is it for uh, sectioning off pieces throughout the day? Does it tell us anything about the average size of a family? You know, if eight cuts, um, is it symbolic in nature? Um, so that loaf of bread to me is is probably one of the most beautiful um, pieces of evidence of food archaeology um, for for the Roman Empire because it is trying to tell us a lot, but, but we don't know quite yet what it is. Um, and that, that ridge around the outer edge of it, the outter rim. Now, if so far, so the listeners, yeah, that, that have to uh, describe it for our listeners. And that's almost like a, um, so the bread bakes up and almost the top of it's almost like a, a muffin top in a way, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, What's, what's tricky about that is, I mean, some people have proposed twine, and I tried twine in my last recipe because I thought, you know what, I'm going to give it a go. Maybe it was something that was baked in because it made it for easy carrying, or maybe they hung the loaves up to cool because they didn't have enough space if they were producing high, a high volume of bread daily. Um, but the twine was, was very clumsy. It felt like it was a waste of my time, and, it, you know, if I was a baker in, you know, like the Bakery of Modesto or Papidius Priscus, I wouldn't have time to tie twine around all of these loaves of bread. So um, was, it, was it a bull? Was it a padella? Was it a pan? But the problem is, is, is if you flip that loaf out, once it's risen and you flip it out, how is the bottom still, still beveled and rounded if it's inside of a pan, unless it's oven spring that's making it push itself out, you mm-hmm. know, and making it... Um, balloon on the bottom as well as on the top. Hmm. So 
Panis quadratus is very tricky, and it's something that I'm continuing to look into, and I'm going to follow it up with yet another attempt to see um, what could have made those cuts. And it's something that I'm going to dig even deeper on because I've had such a significant amount of email comments, um, messages on Facebook, and people saying, I think it's this, I think it's that. And so I'm going to kind of have a look at it under a microscope and try to figure out um, what made those cuts, what made the, the rim around the outer edge, and then why. Why? Mm-hmm. Is it strictly decorative? That's or what I was thinking. Was it, I mean, was it strictly decorative? Who knows? I mean, you know, right. mm-hmm. And I mean, there's one loaf of bread that was found that was found that was um, cut in half. It was ripped in half. So they may have been doling it out in portions as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, something else that I thought about, and, and this, you know, I when I saw the picture and I read some of the discussion, I was thinking, hmm, I liked your idea of the string. That, that seemed to be a, a good way to make that ridge. Um and was it so that it would help it rise a little more? But then I was thinking, you know, the bread, at least a, a, a long horizontal slice of the bread, would have been used in, probably in a little bit, maybe in more in the modern era, but no, I think in the ancient era too, if I'm remembering correctly, as a trencher, as a plate to put the food absolutely as on. a utensil yeah now utensil. could this so could this have been a marker for you'll eat the top of the bread where it's scored and you'll slice off the bottom half below the it's like above the salt below the salt above the above the ridge or below the ridge you slice off below the ridge and that becomes the trencher on the table i don't know it was that's just, a wonderful theory it was just something a wonderful that theory popped into this head as i was reading the uh, the wonderful discussion on it and there are so many more wonderful discussions and so so much some so many sources, so much reading material, um, and, I, and we've only touched on a little bit. And I knew we would run out of time and not be able to touch on everything I had in my in, in mind and on my list. But uh, before before we do run out of time, I I really um, want to talk about something that you and one of our good friends, Ken Albala, um, are doing this summer. Ken is a frequent guest here on on uh, Heritage Radio, and particularly on my show. And um, he's written the wonderful, uh, so many wonderful books. But then also, particular to this, particular to this show, the um, the guide to food history reading. Him, I forget the actual title. Can kill me. The reader. Okay, the, the reader. reader. Okay, the yeah. history reader. Another right. one of my bibles. Right. <laughs> he gives you sources to go to when you are trying to, you know, to to learn something and study about the food of of um, different periods. But tell us about what you and Ken are doing this summer. So um, Ken and I are holding a food workshop at a 2,000-year-old Roman villa to the north of Rome that is located off of the Via Solaria. And um, so I, I had originally had this idea, and I thought, you know, given the response over last year and the readers who are writing in and emailing, um, and the amount of engagement, I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could actually get a whole bunch of people together in an original setting with some of the original tools and the original food stuff to make this together, to um, engage in discussion, to eat it all together, and to explore that history further. And um, so, Dr. Albala, he's always been he's always been very very good to me, and I um, I. Um, met him, quote-unquote, on Facebook about a year ago when I had been reading his stuff and I friended him and I saw that he was friending a lot of his readers and everything. And he's always He's been very good to me 
um, throughout my experiments as well. Like I'll I'll message or message him on Facebook at nine o'clock in, at night and say this garum <laughs> is terrible. How much should I be using? He's like, don't use too much. And he's like, by the way, I like it. And I'm saying, I think it's disgusting, you know. And he's he's always very approachable and available. Um, when you've got questions about your ingredients or the process in general. So I had this idea and I thought I would really, really love um, to be able to get a workshop up. And I approached Ken and I said, would you be interested in doing this with me and working with me on this? And he said, absolutely. So I was over the moon, very happy about that. And um, so I went about finding what I felt to be the appropriate location um, because I thought there's no point in doing this in an apartment in Rome, for example when you can do it in a villa where there's actually there's um, a triclinium in the backyard. There's remnants of a triclinium. There's archaeology there. It, um, it's and, a, a and Roman villa that, of course, has been you know renovated and moder- modernized. Um, but it's as close to the original scenario as you can get, and I'm very excited about it. And it's um, being held from June 16th to the 23rd, and we are almost sold out, which makes me happy. Um and I'm very much looking forward to it. But there are a couple spots left, right? So there if are. someone's very interested, um, you go to tavolamediterranea.com, and all the information will be there for you to check, as well as the wonderful writings that uh, Farrell has has published and, and the recreations of the recipes for you to try with, recip- with recipes, so you can try them as well. And um, I think Ken is listening to us now. I think I just saw he posted here so <laughs> he um you know he he can chime in there on when we post this later there'll be a link posted later and um and ken will be joining me next week when we talk about something yeah um, we'll get to the roman era we'll be talking about the history of noodles so Farrell, this is so exciting i wish i wish i could be there i wish i could be a fly on the wall and be there and and we would love to taste all you. the food yeah um but it's it's wonderful to know about and hopefully it's something that can continue another time as well and i encourage people to to grab their books and get on the website and take a look and Farrell, thank you so much i look forward to reading more of your terrific posts you're so welcome thank you and thank you for listening to this version of A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.